This podcast does not constitute medical advice. All changes surrounding medications, diet and exercise should be made in consultation with a professional who can assess your unique health circumstances. Welcome to the Patterson Program, where you'll learn how to improve your health from the inside out. And now, your host, Clint Patterson. A pleasure today to welcome back to our show, Dr. Richard Matthews, who's been on our show many times before. Today, we're going to talk about gut acid, hydrochloric acid, and its role on inflammatory arthritis and the body as a whole. G'day, Dr. Matthews. Good day, Clint. Thank you for having me back again. Uh, Always a pleasure. Now, uh, just to set our our uh, minds in the right direction before we launch into this. A reminder that our issues with inflammatory autoimmune arthritis are described in the acronym that I created called BLAME, which is bacterial overgrowth, leaky gut, acidosis, acid secretion in the stomach, and that's what we'll be talking about today, uh, mucosal lining depletion and enzyme deficiency. And so with that as our framework, we're going to drill down today on stomach acid and learn how it affects us and what it does and what we can do to increase it if we need to. So, Dr. Matthews, what role does stomach acid play in the body? What's it there for? The two biggest categories of roles for stomach acid are one, as a gatekeeper, and two, to break down proteins into usable pieces. When you eat something that has protein in it, particularly if it's meat, but but even other proteins, the stomach acid breaks the peptide bonds. So you release amino acids, which are what proteins are made of and the more usable part of protein. So if you do not have enough stomach acid to do that, then your proteins go on downstream, partly undigested into the small intestine and colon. And if the proteins are meat proteins, they can then putrefy instead of digesting or fermenting. And putrefy, just like the word sounds, is a bad, nasty, and produces harmful chemicals with actual names like putrescine and cadaverine, a real molecule. But it's not something you want in your system because it promotes inflammation. So that is one of the major roles of stomach acid. Its role as a gatekeeper involves what gets through. So if you consider what from up here goes through down to our stomach, we have first whatever we eat. And stomach acid disinfects what we eat, or at least it tries to. So when you, when you go to a Chinese food buffet and the buffet is, is bad and some people become ill, there are always some people that do not become ill, well, usually, and it's safe to say those are probably the people that have better stomach acidity. The reason that I say that is that if you look throughout the biology of other organisms, there are several organisms with much greater stomach acidity than humans. And those organisms are always ones who can eat dead things better than we can. Um, vultures, buzzards, as they're known in the southern U.S., um, Eagles, to some extent, eat carrion, and most manner of canines, like dogs or coyotes, have such stomach acidity that they can literally eat roadkill and suffer no ill consequences most of the time. 
But humans have at least some stomach acid, and it does help us disinfect our our food, our water, things that when your friend hands you a breath mint, it passes through his fingers and whatever bacteria there on your breath mint go into your stomach. The importance of disinfecting what goes in is that those become additions to your gut bacteria if they get through the stomach. So even the bacteria that cause oral decay that rot your teeth and give you gum disease, some of which are acutely important for people with rheumatoid arthritis, those bacteria are supposed to be disinfected when you know you swallow spit or something all through the day that brings the bacteria to the stomach. And if the stomach has enough acid, then it can kill those bacteria and they don't make it to your microbiome. But if you have gum disease and you have Porphyromonas gingivalis living in your mouth and you swallow it and your stomach doesn't kill it, it becomes part of your gut microbiome where it has been strongly associated with rheumatoid arthritis. When it gets into your blood supply, if you have leaky gut, it's strongly associated with plaque in your arteries and heart disease. So it's not something you want floating around in the system. You really don't want it in your mouth either. Absolutely. All right. So we've got the gatekeeper effect and we've got the one, the other side of the coin that we talk about all the time, which is the the protein digestion effect. Does the hydrochloric acid have to defend against anything else other than the saliva in our mouth and the airborne pathogens that are floating around? In fact, it does because whatever grows in the lungs ends up populating the stomach. Our lungs are full of a little bit layer of mucus and uh, the lining of the tubules in the lungs have little hair cells called cilia that are always moving like this to move the mucus outward. And the purpose of that is so that dust and pollen and bacteria that you inhale gets stuck to the mucus and the lungs can clear it out. And all of that ends up in your stomach. That is also why, for example, cigarette smokers have a smoker's cough in the morning that is stopped by the morning cigarette because cigarettes paralyze those little hair cells that are called cilia. And it's also why cigarette smoke promotes stomach cancer, because it doesn't just end up in the lungs, it ends up in the stomach. But the bacteria that you breathe in, for example, if you're sweeping out the barn or you're changing your cat's litter box, that dust that you can smell has bacteria in it, quite a bit of it. And a lot of it ends up in your lungs. And the reason you don't perpetually have pneumonia is because your lungs are perpetually cleaning out. And they put all of that stuff in the stomach, which is where it's supposed to be incinerated by stomach acid, unless you do not have stomach acid. And we're back to that. Wow. Okay. So everything that we're breathing in into our lungs gets pushed back up by a constant movement of mucus, and then the mucus goes down into our stomach, correct? That is correct. And it won't be harmful to us if our stomach acid protects us from all that by disinfecting it. Exactly. And it's easy to think air is clean, but if you've ever tried to make your own wine or beer or anything fermented, you realize pretty quickly that if you don't provide some kind of airlock to keep the air out of it, that it goes bad. With a couple of exceptions, kefir can be made pretty reliably. But beer and wine are really hard to make reliably without an airlock to keep outer, outside air from getting in because the bacteria will 
change the fermentation and ruin it. So the other thing that comes in really is from your sinuses. So same sort of thing, your sinuses, as you breathe in, your nose cavity um, filters the air before it gets to the lungs. A lot of that sticks to mucus and it reduces to some extent how much of the garbage ends up in your lungs. But what's in the sinuses drains into the throat and into the stomach. And we're back to the stomach again. So it's somewhat of a a funnel point for things entering the human body from the top half. Same thing happens if you have an ear infection or something, it all drains into your throat and you end up swallowing all of that. So there's no way to get around it. Stomach acid is really quite important to disinfect those things. And really, it is good reason to go farther than just restoring stomach acid, but trying to keep the sinuses clear and uh, keep the teeth and the gums healthy and brush and floss and maybe use mouthwash or (laughs) all of those take on a whole different importance when you realize how many sources of bacteria there are that get sent to the stomach. Right, because if we're not taking care of it in a way that we're aware of, the stomach acid has to compensate and do all the heavy lifting. Now, There is a common belief that the stomach acid only gets released into the stomach when there is food consumed. And so what I'm learning is that there must be a residual amount of stomach acid there at all times, or the body considers this release of this other gunk into the stomach as a trigger for stomach acid. There is always some stomach acid. The acidity is stronger when you're eating. But the other thing that happens is that the stomach is not as mobile when you're not eating. So whatever goes to the stomach may just stay there until the next time you eat when acid is released to a greater extent. Right. If you really need some proof of that, the easiest way to prove it is a simple thing called time-released niacin, which occasionally works like it's supposed to, but only if you take it right while you eat. Niacin, when you take it, if it isn't time release, it gives you a big flush. It gives you a hot flash. I did this uh, one time. It's B6, isn't it? It's, it's quite a potent thing when it happens. Yeah. Time release niacin is supposed to prevent that by breaking down gradually. But if you take time release niacin on an empty stomach, very often there is no flush until an hour or two later when you eat something. And you realize it's been in your stomach all along. You just didn't absorb it. And then you eat something and you get the big hot flash as if you had just taken straight niacin. Wow. So the way the stomach works, the, the motor activity of the stomach that moves things downstream is activated by eating. So while the acidity is not as strong between meals, it doesn't really matter that much because it's just going to collect whatever goes there until you eat. Oh, and, I see. Acidity. Right, right, right. Almost like there's almost a a damn wall and it only releases once there's enough, I guess, uh, reason to do so. Kind of does. I mean, obviously water gets through. So Mm -hmm. if you drink a whole lot of water in between meals, you may still end up washing the bacteria downstream. But, but if your stomach acidity is working as it should, it's not like it's a neutral pH in between. There's, there's always some acidity. Right. I always look for, for entertaining practical examples. Um, Anybody that's thrown up between meals knows there is usually acidity involved. Yeah. It, it, 
The niacin one, though, is a classic. I've not told this story before, but I went through this phase where I was just taking every supplement that I thought had even a remote likelihood of helping my condition. And the niacin was one of them. And I was told to, I read about how you meant to take enough to give yourself this this mild red flush. <laughs> and I'd warned my wife that this may or may not happen. And um, anyway, I went about just taking the dose that was recommended and um, and I turned to her about 15 minutes later and I said, honey, and I was about to ask her if I had turned red. <laughs> she turned around and said, what the f***? And swore, what's wrong yeah. with you? And I mean, I looked like I had been totally <laughs> lying out in the sun three straight days i mean i was red yes and there's not a whole lot you can do about it besides drink like a half <laughs> gallon of water and try to dilute it as quickly as possible but it's, it's, a, a, it's a good party trick at the very least um, <laughs> <laughs> so moving along now a good, you know, we've described a good working order, a body in a good shape. Now, how come so many people then take antacids and try to suppress their stomach acid? And, you know, when I was at an event recently with Dr. Clapper, you know, he and I were talking about the, the negative impact of these antacids or proton pump inhibitors on the healthy microbiome. So we don't want to be taking these when we're trying to reverse rheumatoid or, or I guess, have general good health. So why do people take them? What's going on with this suppression of stomach acid situation? Well, there are really only two reasons that people take them. One is kind of temporarily valid. That would be if you have a known identified stomach ulcer, you may need to suppress acid temporarily just in order to give the ulcer a time to heal so that it doesn't bleed more and more and uh, cause bigger problems. But for the majority of people, the reason that those things are given is simply because they have heartburn. And heartburn is interpreted usually as too much stomach acid, whereas really heartburn can often be the opposite. It can be caused by low stomach acid that results in an overgrowth of bacteria or in some cases caused by an overgrowth of bacteria. And what you feel as heartburn is what it feels like to have food sort of rotting at 98 degrees in your stomach instead of being digested because there's no acid and there's too much bacteria. Or if you have reflux, if your lower esophageal sphincter, the thing that keeps the food from coming back up, if that is weak, then even a little bit of stomach acid will cause quite a bit of heartburn and start to, uh, in the long run, damage your esophagus. But it doesn't necessarily mean that there is too much acid. It means your sphincter muscle that's supposed to keep it in the stomach is not working properly. And there are things, there are exercises that you can do to, to restore the nerve function that helps it to work better. Well, perhaps if you could just share that with us now before we move on any further. So, Let's just put our little, like, Mr. Fix-It hat on. For people who are taking these antacids, what would be a, a way in which we can keep that acid in their stomachs rather than throwing these unhelpful and counterproductive antacids into the mix? Well, there are several things that I recommend to cover all the bases. 
One is a supplement called DGL, D-glycerizinated licorice, which is uh, available in a lot of brands. Sometimes it's called Risinate. But that is a, an herb treatment that increases the production of mucus in the esophagus and the stomach and the digestive tract. So it promotes healing, and that protects from any reflux that's happening. Secondly, to understand how the sphincter muscle works, you have one part of your autonomic system that is involved in swallowing and digesting, and not surprisingly, it is the relaxed mode known as parasympathetic. But that sphincter muscle that is the valve into the stomach is powered by your sympathetic system, which is your stress system. So the first one inhibits the second one. So when it's working normally, as you chew and swallow, you're activating your parasympathetics, and that inhibits your sympathetics, which opens the door for the food to get to the stomach, just bing, bang, boom, it's just perfect sequence. However, if you've been under a lot of chronic stress and you haven't slept well and you're in a lot of pain, your system is probably very fatigued and then your sympathetic system that powers that valve doesn't work very well. So the door is kind of half open and it never closes all the way. So either if you bend over or you sleep horizontally on the bed, or even if you squat down, sometimes you'll get reflux because your sympathetic stress system is so tired that it can no longer keep the valve closed. What we do about that, long term, the solutions are, of course, sleeping more and reducing stress. But there are a variety of supplement combinations that have been used to, usually it's, it's labeled as adrenal rescue, which is your sympathetic system. So this could also be what's called adrenal fatigue. Ginseng, for example, is one of the things that helps with adrenal fatigue. And the, the supplement companies have combinations of herbs that help restore adrenal function. In combination with the DGL, there are functional exercises that you can do. Those all are exercises that focus on building what's called vagus nerve function. Your vagus nerve is the parasympathetic nerve that comes from your brain out of your brainstem and powers everything that is controlled by your parasympathetics, which for this discussion is most of the digestive tract is motored by the vagus. So chewing gum, all of these are things that tend to happen up here in the face and mouth because all of those nerves grouped together stimulate the digestive tract because we use them when we chew and eat. So anything that is a tongue exercise, even just pressing your tongue against the roof of your mouth repeatedly, mm -hmm. pressing lips together, chewing gum, making sounds with your throat, whether it's humming a tune or, or practicing little alien voices, foreign accents. <laughs> Hey, you know, if you're driving down the road in your car, there's nobody else in the car. You might as well get something done and entertain yourself. What yeah, you well, say? Singing, um, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Practice your Marvin the Martian voice. Deep breathing, which helps build parasympathetic function. Alternate nostril breathing, where you breathe in through alternate nostrils, has been shown to boost parasympathetic function. All of the things that activate throat muscles tend to activate parasympathetic function. If you want an entertaining thing that you can do that combines almost all of those and is not recommended while driving, we go back to your homeland and learn to play the didgeridoo. Because playing the didgeridoo is deep breathing, circular breathing, in fact, which involves a lot of throat and, and tongue action, 
while working the lips to make a sound called a drone, while vocalizing other sounds overlaid that are part of producing a rhythm. Of course, if I understand correctly, there are most of those sounds are animal sounds that they, they mimic with the voice over sounds. Mm-hmm. But all of that really, really stimu- stimulates your parasympathetics. I knew somebody back when I practiced in Arkansas who was a professional didgeridoo player. His wife played the flute, and they, they put out a lot of uh, video or audio discs together. Quite yeah. beautiful music, actually. And uh, he had a long list of just amazing health benefits that he had experienced from playing the didgeridoo so much. Wow. He swore that his hair went from pure white back to a normal brown color, for example, <laughs> over a period of about five years. And he didn't do anything else different. <laughs> I mean, the guy wasn't a health food guy or anything. That's all he did was yeah. the didgeridoo. Wow. You know? Wow. <laughs> so building sympath- building parasympathetic vagus nerve function mm-hmm. is very, very important. And, right. uh, even as far as restoring adrenal function and restoring sympathetic function, all of the vagus nerve activation helps because, uh, strangely, sometimes to get something better, you have to inhibit it, which only makes sense when you realize if your adrenals are fatigued, maybe you should turn them off for a while and let them recover. And the best way to do that is to build better vagus nerve function. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. people age, that tends to be one of the things that goes out the door. Mm-hmm. You can look at most people's changes as they go through life, the changes they do not like, and many of them are tied to autonomic imbalance. That's hair loss, impotence, dry skin, cold hands, cold feet, high blood pressure, mm-hmm. constipation. Almost mm-hmm. all of those, those things can almost always be caused by too much sympathetic function. Mm-hmm. And then later in life, Incontinence, for example, is is when the sympathetic system starts to fail. That's also when older people tend to lose their night vision and cannot see well in the dark because your sympathetics are what make your pupils dilate. Right. If you've ever played a house cat, and you know the moment when the house cat gets a bit too serious, <laughs> his pupils go really big, and you know you have a moment to back <laughs> off. They're about to get clogged. <laughs> it's always right. easy to remember how the sympathetic, <laughs> but. Um, you can't see in the dark anymore without using a flashlight. You, you're experiencing sympathetic fatigue. It's a very real thing. Mm-hmm. And it goes along with reflux, mm-hmm. which heartburn, which makes people think that they need to take antacids. Right. Interestingly, sometimes the reflux does not actually cause heartburn if you don't have enough stomach acid, but it can cause sinus infections. It can cause throat infections it can make your voice hoarse it can make you have to clear your throat all the time it can cause asthma as it inflames your lungs those things are proven in research to be caused by silent reflux and yet um, they're very seldom attributed to that in the real world because there's no obvious clue Hmm. but you have all those things and you don't have heartburn you might still be having reflux and it may be a clue that you have little to no stomach acidity which well, is which is the problem with a lot of people with inflammatory arthritis. So the studies show that people with rheumatoid, psoriatic arthritis, at least those of study those studies exist, showing that uh, these folks have uh, very low stomach acid. So we can move through this fairly quickly because you've already mentioned one of the consequences of this 
is the potential of uh, bacterial overgrowth because our bouncer at the nightclub there preventing all of these uh, microbes from from entering where they shouldn't be or bashing them over the head um, they are allowed in and so you can get an overgrowth in the in the upper intestine so that's one problem and that obviously has consequences what other problems might exist or what what can result from having a intestinal overgrowth in the uh, small intestine well, intestinal overgrowth of, of bacteria or yeast really affects the immune system, and it creates a situation uh, that can create everything from allergies to autoimmune disease. So it may make you more allergic to your cat, or it may make your immune system start to attack your joints even more. It's definitely not a good situation. Right. So we're going to talk about raising stomach acid. Is that the probably the number one strategy towards overcoming a small intestinal bacterial overgrowth? Yes. And there, there are really two steps to the strategy. One is raising it quickly by taking something. And two is helping restore autonomic balance, as I was mentioning before, because in the long run, that can help restore acidity. But it's usually not an immediate process like taking betaine hydrochloride, for example. All right. Well, tell, talk us through that. Betaine hydrochloride is uh, a supplement. It's, it's a capsule that has stomach acid in it of sorts. It's really a plant-based acid. But the way that we implement this is you take one capsule before every meal for a day or two. And if that does not cause any heartburn, then you take two before every meal the next day. And if that doesn't cause heartburn, you take three, up to as many as four before every meal, which is actually quite a bit. The idea being that when you reach the point that, oh, yeah, that gave me heartburn, that's a little too much acid, and then you back off from that, and that should be an, an optimal level of acidity to help you digest your food. If you get up to four and it still doesn't cause any, any heartburn, well, it's a pretty good sign that you have little to no stomach acidity. I don't know that I would go over that because that ought to be enough stomach acidity to get the job done one way or the other. It may mean that uh, your mucus production is intact, so you're not getting any heartburn. and You may not have reflux, but, but you definitely don't have acid either. Okay, three questions with that. And uh, number one is um, when you say before a meal, I want to know how close to the meal. Like, does it need to be just as we begin our first bite or does it? can it be a few minutes before? Number two, I wanted to ask you, what does heartburn feel like for someone who hasn't ever experienced it? And number three, would it be good practice for folks to take that mucus-promoting herb that you mentioned earlier, irrespective of whether or not they feel they have any of the above issues? Well, it's definitely a good idea to take the mucus promoting DGL regardless, because it safeguards against all of the issues. As to what heartburn feels like, that's very, very variable depending on, uh, on several things. One is how damaged your esophagus is. The first time somebody has some reflux, it's usually not that painful. But if you've had so much reflux that the inside of your esophagus is raw and damaged, a condition that uh, can even expose blood vessels, and that's known as Barrett's esophagus. And it's actually a precancerous condition if it goes that far. Then the pain can be really 
mirror what you would expect from a massive heart attack. In fact, there are always people who are admitted to a hospital with suspect a suspected heart attack that end up really that was reflux. Wow. It can be that bad. It can be quite burning and crushing. Usually in the beginning, it's sort of a warmth and an uncomfortable feeling. Uh, the closest thing that I can explain is uh, if you've ever had a shot of good whiskey, oh, generally right. that makes your tummy uh-huh. feel pretty warm. Or yeah, vodka. yeah, yeah, yeah. I can relate um, to that from apple cider vinegar. Taking apple cider vinegar for me just feels like there's too much heat in the middle of my body that doesn't feel right. Yeah. A big shot of bourbon or something will create quite a bit of heat there. It's usually regarded as a good thing then, and it doesn't uh, last very long. But with heartburn, it may last for an hour or two, which, uh, or, or longer, mm-hmm. which obviously is, is much more severe. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's quite different for different people. But mm-hmm. as always, you should listen to the body and figure out what is it trying to tell me when you feel something weird? And what about um, how soon uh, before the meal with the betaine hydrochloride? I usually recommend 10 or 15 minutes All before. Right. If you take it longer than that before a meal, you may get some heartburn regardless because there's nothing there for it to digest. Yeah. Interesting. In real practice, when I've had to use it myself, I usually just leave it on the table and I take it and then I eat. Otherwise, I'll forget it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. That works all right also. Mm-hmm. But anywhere ten, up to 10 or 15 minutes before is um, what is usually recommended. And if people suspect they have this SIBO, do you think that... Um, they will be able to notice any reduction in their joint symptoms within a week or two if they go down the uh, supplement path with the hydrochloric acid? That is potential. I've seen it happen that quickly. Um, It depends on how many other factors are at work promoting inflammation. For example, if, if your SIBO and your low acidity is a relatively new thing, your gut bacteria may still be in, in pretty good shape. But if you're figuring this out and it's been happening for five to 10 years, your gut bacteria may already be a train wreck. And this is just one building block of fixing the problem. And you may not get any relief of those symptoms. What people usually do see as relief of symptoms is less short-term bloating and discomfort right after they eat. That's probably the biggest immediate symptom of low acidity, or bacterial overgrowth is just feeling lousy right after you eat. Mm. Okay, and good. You really should feel fed and relaxed, but not bloated or even in pain after you eat. It's always surprising how much people can start to accept as normal when you've experienced it for so long. You yeah. kind of forget. Oh yeah, that's really not supposed to happen. Yeah, and it, and especially if it's if you haven't got something so bad that you talk about it with other people, particularly people at work, you wouldn't mention it to them other than your husband or wife. You know, if the symptoms are sort of restricted to basically discomfort after eating, as you say, you can get used to that your entire life and think that that's what everyone has. And you don't just bring this up with people. You just think, oh, that's normal. Hey, I met someone who... Television don't help with that either. Because they're always there telling you, oh, you have that? Well, everybody has that. Just take Tums. It's got calcium, something your body needs already, which is just kind of a horrible lie. You're not going to absorb the calcium anyway (laughs) without stomach acidity. (laughs) 
So just to now give our audience a couple more ways in which they can raise stomach acid if they want to go down this path in the guide for rheumatologists that you have helped me with that's available for free on my site, pattersonprogram.com forward slash guide, which lists all the scientific studies supporting the Patterson program and what it does, what's entailed. We've listed celery juice as something that can help and this supports the use of it in our program. Uh, So that's one way. And you've also um, listed here uh, or helped me with uh, yoga and that ties into the whole vagus nerve angle, doesn't it, with the deep breathing? Yoga really is one of the things that uh, can combine all of those autonomic balancing factors on top of some other things that are a little bit harder to quantify, but, you know, it's just a a fun group activity that tends to reduce stress. Um, Unless you're the one guy that can't assume any of the poses, I suppose, but it's definitely a good stress reduction therapy. I mean, it's been shown to reduce blood pressure and that is, uh, that is proof in itself that it helps to balance your autonomic system. The, uh, Celery has has also been shown to protect against ulcers and protect the cells of the stomach. And uh, really, it's it's quite remarkable what can be done with it. Which is good because I drank truckloads of it over the years. And this lot of potassium, well, there you go. Again, another mineral that we know is linked to uh, clinical improvements to uh, symptoms when you've got rheumatoid arthritis. So... We love our celery and cucumber juice. We love our yoga. We can experiment with the betaine hydrochloride that you mentioned before. And I think that's, uh, you know, that is something that I did myself. It was during the same time that I was going crazy with my niacin and all my other supplements. So I couldn't honestly tell you whether or not it helped me or not, because there was just too many variables and supplements at the same time. And um, also in our guide for rheumatologists, meditation is also listed and alternate nasal nasal breathing. So meditation and alternate nostril breathing. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that wraps us up for ways that we can increase our stomach acid. And it, and it certainly is an endeavor that's worth pursuing because we know the studies show that most people with rheumatoid arthritis have uh, low or absent stomach acid. And we've heard from Dr. Matthews the consequences of that, the uh, Uh, bacterial overgrowth, and we've heard how crucial it is to have adequate levels of stomach acid for our immune system because the stomach acid is the gatekeeper for all of those functions that are going on in the body through the sinus, through the lungs, through the atmospheric air that we're breathing in and through our foods. So we really have to have good levels of stomach acid. So Dr. Matthews, thank you so much. How can people work with you or learn more about your services and products? Well, I have a website, neurodocforyou.com. I I write a blog, which I need to contribute to more often, called the symbiantfactorblog.com, where there are a lot of similar articles. And I wrote a book called The Symbiant Factor, which is all about gut bacteria. And uh, the stomach acid plays right into that because our digestive tract goes one way most of the time. And uh, whatever starts out at the top end influences what happens downstream. And uh, this is where it starts if you want to improve your gut bacteria and then improve your immune function. I also have an online store that, that has a variety of useful supplements to help accomplish these goals. 
Awesome. And uh, you are working on a couple other things that we'll be able to tell people about in the future, yeah. which is assisting people with their interpretations of very complicated stool sample uh, reports. There's and exciting things in the works. There are. There's lots of exciting things. But if you haven't got Dr. Matthew's book, go and grab it. A fabulous read, The Symbiont Factor. And I will put the links to these other uh, services in the transcription on our website for this episode. Once again, thank you, Dr. Matthews. You're welcome. Thank you and take care and stay healthy. You've been listening to the Patterson Program. For more information, visit pattersonprogram.com.